The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Our approach to tackling coronavirus is to prepare for the worst and work for the best. You need a totally different style of leadership. It's not enough to have a plan. You need to be testing, testing, testing. Britain and the EU, do they want to be seen as locking horns on an issue such as a no-deal Brexit when the economy is going to be suffering and people's lives are going to be facing so much disruption? Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now we begin with Brexit. Now, there was a time when we didn't begin with anything else. But right now, the EU and the UK do seem a step closer to reaching a trade deal. Boris Johnson held a virtual summit on Monday with the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, which sources say did inject a bit of new momentum into the deadlocked negotiations. After the meeting, Boris Johnson was asked by reporters what he thought the chances were of an agreement being reached. Well, I think they're very good, provided we really focus now and get on and do it. And as I said to uh, the, the three presidents, um, you know, put a tiger in the tank. Tiger in the tank. Well, we'll see if that works. But officials from Brussels and London say they are focusing on reaching an accord between mid-August and a summit of EU leaders scheduled for mid-October, though the Prime Minister himself was talking about something happening in July. Yeah, very upbeat from Boris Johnson yesterday, wasn't it? Uh, Meanwhile, we get more dire economic data today in the UK. The number of workers on company payrolls slumping by more than 600,000 and benefits claims soaring during lockdown. 2.8 million people now on universal credit. Wages also in free fall. The Shadow Work and Pension Secretary Jonathan Reynolds says Labour is demanding an emergency budget. We were too slow at various points of this crisis, too slow into lockdown, too slow to deal with the problems in social care. Let's not be too slow in dealing with this mass unemployment crisis. Jonathan Reynolds there, the Shadow Work and Pensions Secretary. Well, joining us now is Claudia Webb. She's the Labour MP for Leicester East. Good to have you with us, Claudia. Uh, A budget then is what Labour is calling for. Why not simply a continuation of the ad hoc interventions we've seen already from Rishi Sunak? Well, we, we clearly can't just have uh, such a, 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 a sort of that kind of response to what is a, a, a crisis, really, that's going to affect too many people. We've got uh, a need to be able to uh, see a future ahead. And in a sense, we've got to understand that this, this, this crisis and the economic impact will, will harm too many working uh, people. Um, there, are t- there are far too many people living in poverty now, and we can't just plan for the wealthy. We have to plan uh, for those who are most in need. And it will be those that, uh, that uh, are in precarious jobs, that have precarious futures, that are out of work, that are making choices between heating and eating, uh, that we need to uh, lend our weight to in, in, and support, and only a very clear planned future that's set out in a budget 
for the future that brings about a change in the future so that we can begin to say um, where we, the support is most needed. Because what is clear from this uh, coronavirus uh, pandemic, it is clear that it, it's not the the the, uh, the the billionaires and the wealthy that saw us out of the crisis. It has been uh, those uh, sure. like nurses, like carers, uh, like uh, um, shop workers that have been the most... Uh, uh, relevant in this crisis, and they are underpaid. But, but but if we go uh, in for a full, pe- Claudia, if we go in for a full blown budget now, don't you risk using all of your moves uh, in a situation that, as we know, is so fast changing that you want to be able to be nimble? This, the the situation the situation is 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 about being transparent and about being clear about the future. We can't go back to business as usual. As usual, we need transformational change. And in order to get transformational change, we need to be able to examine uh, the, the, the the government's approach uh, to, uh, to to this. And, and you can do this by looking very clearly at the Treasury and very clearly at uh, what, their, what the budget uh, being proposed is looking like. And that way we can scrutinise very carefully the detail, line by line, to ensure uh, that, that, that those who, are, who uh, the government has least helped in the past get the help that they need now going forward. But, Claudia, I mean, everyone says that what the government is doing now is something that in ordinary times would, well, it would be well beyond anything that, that, that Jeremy Corbyn would have wanted, even in terms of government support. This is a government that has gone as foremost as far as it possibly could in helping workers, in trying to cushion the blow from all this. I mean, frankly, what else could they do? Well, the government uh, uh, has... We're talking about a government that is implementing, um, you know, a response in unprecedented time against the backdrop of um, at least 10 years of austerity where people uh, weren't helped, weren't supported and where the country wasn't ready. This This is a government that was too slow... Um, in in lockdown, too slow to respond to the coronavirus, too t- slow in terms of personal protective equipment, uh, and 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 where, quite frankly, uh, it had the government had acted quick quicker, that there would not have been so many deaths uh, uh, that we are seeing in in the UK. The number of deaths from coronavirus uh, is unprecedented and should not have happened and would not have happened had the, had the government responded much quicker. And what we have now in terms of the government response is there are too many people that are falling through the cracks of government support. So there are so many people uh, like um, uh, the self-employed, like those who, uh, who, 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 who had recently changed jobs, uh, like those who have no recourse to public funds, that are simply not being helped by this government and are living in destitute situations. And that isn't good enough. And poverty levels uh, are exacerbated during these times because the government simply doesn't care about the least well-off. Would it be an idea then to reduce the two metre rule maybe to one metre uh, to get large swathes of the economy going again and make sure that people don't fall into unemployment? There is nothing more important than life. And in a sense, we're not, you know, again, I don't believe that the country is anywhere close uh, to a, 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 an R rate uh, uh, that 
that is low enough to bring us out of uh, lockdown. And when you think about the communities that are affected quite significantly by the government's uh, actions to ease lockdown, when you think about uh, African, Asian, uh, uh, Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi communities uh, and how they are disproportionately affected by uh, coronavirus and the significant high levels of deaths and those who who have caught the virus, uh, then you know that actually the dangers of coming out of lockdown too early, it will be those communities that will continue to be disproportionately affected. This is a a, 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 a COVID-19 uh, coronavirus pandemic that has shone a cruel and harsh and brutal light on the racial and class inequalities uh, that exist in Britain today. And, and we clearly need to address those underlying uh, factors. And returning too quickly in opening up the economy uh, uh, instead of saving lives is, 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 in fact, I believe, the wrong move. Claudia, let me move you on to another issue that clearly is very important in the UK at the moment, and that's to do with the demonstrations that came about following the death of George Floyd in the in the US, the focus on racial inequality in this country. Uh, a lot of people are saying that the initiatives the government have put forward on this aren't particularly outstanding, just another inquiry, another investigation. What would you like to see as concrete measures that could be put in place to deal with the issue of inequality? Well, you know, um, we need the government really to act on uh, the existing uh, inquiries that are already uh, out there. Um, You you know, there are already 200 recommendations that have come from government commissions, uh, inquiries since 2015 around the issue of race equality that the government simply has not implemented therefore showing a lack of due care and attention. Um, we, on, the, on issues uh, like uh, COVID-19 and the disparities, for example, and the inequalities uh, uh, that have been set with regards to those uh, disproportionate impacts uh, on um, COVID-19, um, the, the government has reluctantly or belatedly issued its report and then didn't produce any action or protective measures, despite me asking the Prime Minister direct at Prime Minister's question time in May, and the Prime Minister promised by the end of May that not only would we have a report, but we would have action and protective measures. To date, none of this has been produced except the report. And so the, the government could do well in, in coming up with those actions. We know the reality of the impact of, of, of COVID-19, and this needs to be brought to light. There have been too many deaths in custody. And, you know, the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, um, you know, I stand in solidarity with that movement in shining a, a, a light on what is happening in terms of state-sanctioned racism. And quite frankly, the UK is not immune uh, from this type of racism. And the deaths in custody that we've had, um, uh, at least 184 black deaths in custody since 1969, with not a single officer brought to justice, 
I think, is wrong. The government could do well in showing uh, yeah. leadership by ensuring that we open up these inquiries. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. We start with the political fallout from the government support schemes, the furlough schemes, British Airways hitting back after a scathing parliamentary report from the Transport Committee. Uh, that report was about British Airways' plans to slash up to 12,000 jobs while taking furlough money. They call that a national disgrace. Well, Willie Walsh, who's the chairman of IAG, which is the parent company, of British Airways told the committee the real disgrace would be to lie down and surrender without a fight. He says the approach to job cuts is, he puts it, perfectly lawful. So a spat they're building between companies and MPs throughout this furlough scheme with many, many jobs on the line. Well, and it's not just airlines because uh, bosses at restaurant food chains, including Wagamama, Pizza Hut, they've warned the Prime Minister of massive job cuts if the sector doesn't get more help. They've written a letter to Boris Johnson, backed by 90 companies, that say if social distancing remains, they will need action on tax, on rents and on other support too. The companies praised government measures already introduced, but they said more swift action was needed. The government's commissioned a comprehensive review into the two-metre rule which it says will be completed in the coming weeks. That's a lot of pressure on the Prime Minister, isn't it? Cut down that rule or it's going to cost you, is the message from them. Meanwhile, England striker, and I'm watching this one with interest after we brought it to you yesterday, Marcus Rashford has said he will fight on after the government confirmed it will not provide free school meal vouchers during the summer. It's the story that's all over Twitter. Uh, this weekend, the Manchester United player wrote an emotional plea uh, in an open letter to MPs in which he said the system isn't built for families like mine to succeed, but the Department for Education said it would not reverse his decision. But responding in the Times today where he's got an editorial, Rashford has again urged MPs to make a U-turn on their decisions. Campaigners threatening to bring legal action against the government for not extending the food voucher scheme into the summer holidays. And you're also starting to see some Tory backbenchers as well get on board with the Rashford side of things. People like Robert Halfen, the uh, the head of the Education Select Committee, says so some pretty big names as well. So even more pressure on the government there from a different angle. Now, it's four years. Seems extraordinary. It was uh, that since mm. the murder of the MP, Joe Cox. And speaking to The Guardian, her sister has said it's more important than ever that people pull together with compassion and kindness. Cox was shot and stabbed by the far-right extremist Thomas Mayer on the 16th of June in 2016. She'd been the Labour MP for Batley and Spen for just every year when she was killed. And her sister, Kim Ledbetter, said, how can we still be living in a world where people are abused, attacked and killed because of the colour of their skin? And how can so many of us be so reluctant or unable to listen to other people's opinions in a civilised and respectful manner? She was speaking ahead of the fourth great get-together, which was started in memory of Joe Cox, and in response to her much-quoted message in her maiden common speech that we're far more united and have far more in common than that which divides us. Well, let's pick up on that theme, because one of the things that does unite us, I think, 
is that we almost all of us have elderly relations and people who perhaps have been most in focus in this crisis in terms of their vulnerability I would say are the elderly in Britain. Joining us now I'm very pleased to say is Caroline Abrahams who's charity director for Age UK. Caroline welcome to the programme thank you for being with us. Um, it's a uh, pleasure thank you. Many people have described this period with COVID-19 in Britain as showing up deficiencies in two particular things loneliness and care being two key issues. And I think that's particularly true for the elderly. Do you agree? Um, up to point, yeah, definitely. I think certainly so far as care is concerned. Um, with loneliness, actually, it's uh, Loneliness Awareness Week, so it's a, it's a good time for you to be spotlighting this. Um, actually, people of all ages can be lonely, um, even young people. It's really hard for young people if they're lonely because there's such a stigma attached to feeling that you're not, you haven't got the most fantastic social life that you think you're supposed to have. Um, and for older people during the period of lockdown, for some of them, it's really not been that much different to how life normally is for them because actually they don't see many people at the best of times. So I think it's been varied. I think for other older people who have good social contacts, good, good networks, family, friends, grandchildren, that sort of thing, it's been really tough not being able to see those people. And although the lockdown is now being eased a bit, which is allowing them to get out and about a bit more and form bubbles, as you've probably heard, um, the, the bad news is that for uh, probably about a million older people who have been told to shield, they're still quite constrained in their social contact. And, and what about sort of issues like freedom, quality of life? We talked a little bit about health, but I feel like there are, there are, there are many other areas where old people are losing out here. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's a really anxious time for a lot of older people because, you know, they, they, they read in the newspapers and, and see on the TV what, what we're all seeing, which is that although older people aren't, aren't any more likely to actually get the virus, if you do get the virus, once you get actually even beyond the age of 60, your, your chances of becoming severely ill and even dying go up very fast. Um, so, you know, they're, they're much worse again at 70 and they're worse still over 80 and 90. So, you know, bearing that in mind, people are, are being sensible, I think, and are trying to be cautious. But the downside for that, of course, is that, you know, they're cut off from other people, that um, normal life, uh, the things that often keep people going very much, being able to go down to the shops every day, perhaps have a chat with someone on the, on the checkout, that kind of thing, that's become much more difficult. And uh, the services that older people rely on, a lot of those have stopped for fear of actually bringing the virus in. Sometimes older people have stopped their own services because they think it's, it's too risky, for example, to have a carer come into the home. So all these issues have definitely made this a, a pretty grim time for older people. And, and I've already mentioned that group that's shielding. And the problem for them is there's still no real definite light at the end of the tunnel. We don't know when they will be able to you know, forget about that and actually get back to their normal lives. And I, I, the other thing that I've heard said as well is that they, they don't have much power in this. You know, they're, they're a group that's perhaps represented in the sense we think about them. But in terms of political power, the ability to get things done, it can be a bit limited. And this makes them perhaps weaker in terms of dealing with this virus because um, not, not enough attention is being paid to them. Well, I suppose, you know, some people I've certainly heard saying, uh, well, you know, sure, this is an awful thing and, and some older people have died, but then weren't they going to die anyway? 
which actually isn't true. Um, the science is very clear that the pe- many of the people who've died, it wasn't that they were on the brink of death at all. They had they had some some time still left to them, which was taken away once they became very severely ill. Um, and of course, these people vote. So actually, a lot of the the usual dialogue around older people is that um, some people have often said they've had too much influence over governments who worry about alienating them, um, you know, and what the, the comeback might be at the next election. And I think, obviously, it's very early to tell. We've got a very new government that's only been in, in power for a few months and has, has then had to deal with all of this. So it'll be a long time before we see the, the, uh, the fallout from this. But, uh, you know, I think, I think governments usually quite sensibly don't take the older vote for granted, and I don't think they should. Well, on that point, is there more that the government could or should be doing to address the needs of these people at a time like this? Yes, I think one of the things that we've become aware of is that as far as as far as we know, although there are specific bits of work going on in government to obviously understand the impact of the coronavirus and what they can do uh, coming out of the lockdown to support business, uh, to help schools, um, SMEs, you were talking about the airline industry just now. Um, actually, there's no group actually in government looking at what does this mean for older people and how do we best support them. Um, that probably also reflects the fact that there's no minister for older people, there's no dedicated group of officials, there's no cross-cutting strategy. Um, governments in recent years have, have, have sort of shied away from wanting to do anything like that. Uh, but the upshot has been that um, some of the decision-making, particularly early on in the, in the pandemic, um, did appear to overlook the needs of older people. For example, uh, the older people in, in care homes and what was going to happen if people were discharged out of hospital without us knowing whether they had the virus or not. Um, it's not just this country that's had that problem with care homes. Um, many other European countries have too. But it raises really big questions, I think, right. about, firstly, the future of care for older people, what, where people are safest and where they'll want to be, where they should be, and also about the, the, the sort of sensitivity or otherwise of, of, of governments to the needs of older people. Because um, some of the decision making, as I say, has frankly been very poor. Well, I wanted to pick up on that point about uh, about care homes, Caroline, because it has been one of the big focuses, and many people think will be in the end one of the big scandals that comes out of this in terms of what was done and how lives could have been saved or improved. Where do you see care homes coming out of this crisis? Because historically they've been underfunded, they've been unloved, uh, they've been well, there've been certainly issues about the quality of care. Do you think anything's going to improve? Yeah, I think it definitely will, and I think it has to. And if it doesn't improve on the back of this, then, you know, really, <laughs> I might as well retire and give up and, <laughs> and go home. Because, as you say, I think when as increasingly people are asking questions about how we got to where we are now, and it's a pretty obvious point that when there is an inquiry of some kind, quite a lot of attention will be paid to how we've, we've dealt with care and, and people in care homes in particular. We already know that um, uh, there's, there's a lot of people are thinking, well, if my mum needs care, I think I won't be looking for a care home is the answer for that. And for as long as the virus remains a, a threat or, or other viruses do, if we're going to have future waves, then I don't at all blame families for thinking that it might be safer almost anywhere else than in a care home. And they've been very underfunded and there, there are sort of warnings out now on the business side that uh, perhaps as many as one in ten could go bust, partly because of vacancies, but also because they're, they're having to spend more, firstly because the minimum wage has gone up and the, uh, the government hasn't compensated them for that, but also the cost of PPE equipment and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, there's a big question mark about the future of care homes, I think. Um, and that puts the onus, really, the priority more on home care, 
Because actually, although most people know very little about care, unless they happen to have a relative in the system, um, most people who need care don't get it in a care home at all. They get it at home, in their own homes, and people come in to give them that care. Um, And that's largely what most older people want. The thing about care homes is that these days, they mostly accommodate people who have advanced dementia. Um, And so really, part of this scandal is really about our failure to think hard enough about how we help people with dementia. And I think that's one of the places that policy, governments, politicians are going to have to think hard about whether we can do a better job in the future. Caroline, got to stop you there. Thank you so much. Caroline Abrahams, Charity Director there for Age UK, taking us through uh, one of the big implications of coronavirus, which is the impact on the elderly and the situation playing out in care homes. Well, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of visit bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more